Hello. Follow that. Bloody hell. Um, I live in Lanarkshire. I chose it, Damien. I know. I actually chose it. I came from Ayrshire, which, as we know, is Burns country, and all our important people are dead. Um, <laughs> I moved to Lanarkshire because they have a living Tunnock's wafer factory. Yay! And very important. I was telling Maggie about this, and she, I mean, she didn't look disbelieving, which is a sign of her intense empathy for other human beings. <laughs> but this is, a, this is a cultural emblem to me. In fact, my bag has got a tunnock's... Um, oh, it's a lovely... It's like one of those Gillian Kyle ones. It's a very nice bag, modelled there by Maggie Farrell. Wonderful. I have a painting of a Tunnock's tea cake in my house. And that is what I am reduced to. I cannot be proud of my people, so I am proud of my cakes. <laughs> That's what I've been taken to. At two o'clock every afternoon in Addingston, if you come to visit me, the entire place smells of molten chocolate. That's, am- That's like Roald Dalish. That's Who incredible. Who would not want to live no, there, no. David? So don't be put off by Damien's stories of Lanarkshire. I live in a nicer bit. She lives in the posh bit in a bot house. The first time we went there, I was taken aback because we, we stayed at a place called Bothwell. Tell me there's nobody here from Bothwell, please. Right, okay. Bothwell is full of footballers' wives and knicker shops. It's an <laughs> extraordinary place. There is, there is no iron in Bothwell, but there are three nail parlours. What the fuck is that? You know, it's Strange place. Anyway, we're in Addingston, which is a lot more down market. We just lost our fishmonger and we're in mourning. But apart from that, but where I'm from is a, 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 a tiny wee place on the west coast, as Billy Connell used to say, called Salkuts. And the first time I heard about Salkuts on the television, it was all about the smell of rotten seaweed, and I thought that was fair enough. Salkuts is full of rotten seaweed. Just when you're talking about sectarianism, there was a wee Catholic lad that I used to walk to school because he was younger than me. And I thought that was part of my, not my Christian duty, part of my humane duty was to walk the wee lad to school. And he went to the Catholic school next door to the Protestant school where I was. Except I didn't call it a Protestant school. It was the school. Mm. It was the school. Because we didn't get taught religion. And I said to him one day, you know about this stuff, Colin. Um, What is the difference between you and me, why do your parents tell you you've not to walk me to school? What do they think the difference is? And he said, oh, I, I don't really know, but I think, I think Protestants don't, don't believe in God. <laughs> and that seemed fair enough as well, actually, from where I was, because we didn't get official lessons in it as a subject. Anyway, Salkis is, is where I am from. And in the uh, 70s, the swinging 60s did not happen. In Saltcuts. Saltcuts never swung. <laughs> I get pretty fed up when I read books about the swinging 60s in Carnaby Street because it's as though this was a universal phenomenon. London is a bubble. It's a place where things happen that do not necessarily happen elsewhere. And you mustn't explain yourself to these people, darling. Oh. You mustn't. Your reality, you take for granted and just speak those words and say that stuff. And it's extraordinary how people latch on. You don't have to... See, uh, when, when Alice Walker brought out the colour purple, mm. she didn't change the sort of patois she had written it in, mm. but you got it because it was coming from somewhere yeah. that meant something. Um, and Salkits in the 70s did start to change. And this was how. Salkits 
shopping drag, despite itself, was applying eyeliner. Woolworths was selling T-Rex singles, shiny eye makeup for both sexes, and Ziggy Stardust T-shirts with our hero in lipstick on the front, daring you to think he was engaged in fellatio with a guitar. There was a vinyl merchant down the road where you could trawl openly for the Velvet Underground Lou Reed and Frank Zappa, welcoming the camp, the streetwise, the theatrical, the sleazy, and the heaviest of metal. A wimpy bar set up in Duckhead Street selling things called chocolate bowlers, which were dinky wee buns filled with what they billed as beautiful ice cream. There were pure beef burgers. This was living. Modern girls and modern boys, even in this donkey rides wee town, we discovered there was more to offer to the teenage market than you saw in Chop of the Pops and more directions than down the line straight. In Largs, Several miles up the track from our end of the Shire, which was fairly downbeat, the smart set were throwing parties after their parents had gone out. They had parents that went out. <laughs> and at these parties, what went by the vague soubriquet of getting off was not only permissible but absolutely de rigueur. Couples were assumed to be sexually active because the assumption was trendy and those who, those who were left alone at these parties felt a failure. Even at the time, I suspected everybody hated this stuff. The ear-withering level of noise from the lousy speakers, the lack of dignity upon which the whole thing was predicated. But we went, disliked it, and went all over again, desperate to fit in and find out the after-effects of downing three kinds of liqueurs in ten minutes. We postured, pawed strangers, and said things we regretted and kept our fingers crossed, much the way we dealt with contraception. It's not that we were ignorant, not completely. I had seen nakedness in the cinema. I knew that French kissing was dirty. Most of us knew mass-produced chemical and barrier devices existed and that the responsible thing to do was to seek them out. But we suffered from shame, fear, and feather-brained priorities. Condoms were, let's face it, uncool, passe, and suspiciously soft. I had more than one boy say to me, that's a woman's problem, doll. All that means to me is lack of sensation. <laughs> I'm not going there. And IUDs were for grown-ups who didn't mind being punctured by internal metal hooks. The pill, however, its name uttered in hushed tones with a capital P to show respect, was the princess of preventatives. Pretty pink and sugar-coated, it promised a girl could have her cake without the consequences by the simple expedient of swallowing. It seemed too good to be true, and in some ways it was, but modern boy and modern girl Philip and I discussed our relationship as we understood modern people were meant to. We acknowledged our hopes as a couple, and our default choice of last-minute withdrawal is frankly not good enough for clued-up trendsetters like us. The responsible thing to do, we had read it in Cosmopolitan, was to go to a clinic, which, if the scandal sheets were correct, were handing out contraceptives like sweeties to 13-year-olds. We were over the age of consent. We were a stable unit. We were well-intentioned. Being frank with our parents was a step too far, but we were sure they had at least a clue. 
the etiquette of the place and the times were simply to pretend the opposite. Our doctor still occupied the practice my mother had cleaned when I was three, so we ruled him out because he would just pass on. So Philip made the appointment with his doctor. His doctor, he said, was solid. He was St. Peter. He was our rock. Our case was cast iron. He had every faith that Dr. O'Flynn would be sensitive and kind. (laughs) Philip was already in the waiting room in his great coat by the time I arrived. He'd had a go at shaving and his face was pink with a cut under one ear. I was wearing my school uniform. No... It wasn't a good idea. Oh, Jesus. But I had taken off my makeup and my nail varnish. I thought that would look bland. We agreed not to make an outright demand of the doctor in case that was rude. We would infer. Inference was deferential, and doctors liked you to be deferential. Obsequious and dewy eyed was the safest route to success. Philip went first. After all, he knew him. After a couple of minutes, he came out for me. Inside the tiny wee surgery, Dr. O'Flynn was writing on a piece of paper attached to a blotter. He looked like W.B. Yeats. Wild, grey, a creased handkerchief blousing out of one pocket. And since he was cleaning a fountain pen, he didn't look up. He didn't invite me to sit This young man tells me you're here on an errand. He kept his eyes on the tissue, expecting a blue emission sometime soon. Out of eye shot, I smiled. Very specific advice, is it? He swung in his chair to hold his pen over the bin where it threw up. Sit. I sat. He put the pen back together and turned round to look at us for the first time, the rims of his fingernails livid. And the errand involves contraception. He lined up the syllables like soldiers. Is that the case? We're engaged, Philip said. We want to be responsible about this thing. Oh, we're not getting married anytime soon, I clarified. I've got exams. And anyway, we want to take our time. Philip took my hand. She means we're still saving up. He said, we're trying not to rush things, you know, but we don't want to take any chances either. There was a long silence. And you're telling me this because? We looked at the doctor trying to work out what wasn't clear exactly. Well, Philip tried, we're hoping you'd tell us how to get the pill, I suppose. The pill, Dr. O'Flynn intoned. Contraceptive pills, Philip explained. Philip's allergic to latex, I said. We'll have to get something else. Dr. O'Flynn looked us up and down for a long moment. He gazed at our enmeshed fingers. He ran his eyes over my school tie, my fiddle case, my patent leather, thigh-high boots. You're both over 16, are you? We nodded. He drew a sharp breath through his teeth, hissing. Well, he said. Well. He raised the pen and laid it delicately on his blotter, smearing each side of the nib as a final check for its readiness of use, and set it aside carefully. This done, he turned to us, settling one hand on each knee like a guard lion in front of a jade temple. 
you do not ask directly for my advice, I notice. But I think it's my duty to give it anyway. He switched his gaze to me, straightened and spoke very slowly. My advice, young lady, is to abstain. There was a longer pause. If your eventual intention is marriage, you should be capable of waiting. If not, marry quicker. That thought alone might keep you in the straight and narrow. It saved my generation and served them well enough. The doctor, assuming something was finished, crushed the top sheet of his blotter into a ball as he rose and moved from the table to the door. That is the voice of my heart and convictions. Off you go. It was then I noticed the picture of the Pope on the wall near his plain block calendar. My fiancé had taken me to a doctor with a prominent picture of the Pope (laughs) on his surgery wall. Noticing my noticing, he threw the blotter ball at me. I will not collude in this business. I don't want arguments. He opened the door. There was a waiting room full of people, his cheeks reduced to match-head red spots as he stared. I have given you my advice. Ab. Stain. <laughs> I forgot... Philip said as we stumbled up Duckhead Street. He's an old friend of the family. I forgot about the Pope. (laughs) That we hadn't seen it coming was more than embarrassing. It was a serious setback. Abstain wasn't advice, even if it was two words. It was a judgment. And I wasn't even sure he was allowed to do that. Aren't doctors supposed to give you proper advice if you ask for it? Either way, he had. And the doctors, like teachers and every other keeper of keys since the world began, probably closed ranks if you went to another of their number, told them what had happened, and had another go. Abstain was the only bloody advice we were getting. There were family planning clinics, I knew that, but I had no idea if they dealt only with adult women or where you found one. The chemist had no leaflets, and most of the ads carried London phone numbers, and that was really far away. We did what we could with the abstention thing. But within a week, I had landed a part-time job as a singing waitress with a company putting on Burns Nights for Americans, (laughs) and our celebrations returned things to business as usual. We resorted to paper tissues, not prophylactics. Kept calm and carried on. You know what really gets my coat. It remains a thorn that our legitimate attempts to procure synthetic hormones with which to avoid pregnancy should have been subject to censure when we went to the pub illegally every weekend. And nobody said boo. Under a carcinogenic fug from all manner of fags, Hamlet cigars, slim panatellas and golden Virginia roll-ups, we could order anything we bloody well liked and offer behind the gantry with no questions asked about our age. Philip liked Guinness. I liked vodka on the grounds it tasted of nothing if you put enough of something else in it. (laughs) The fact there was nothing I much liked to drink except tea was not acceptable at the bar. 
Permission to sit in the warmth of the pub rather than being blown along the windswept sand required regular buying of alcohol. And besides, pubs were a sanctioned part of British culture. Pubs like football were as near as damn it sacred. Training yourself to drink alcohol was natural. The desire to avoid pregnancy was just cheating. Looking the part was all it took to be served at the bar and sometimes not even that. When I was in fourth year at school, we used to regularly go to the shoreline guest houses at lunchtime to buy pints and play darts wearing our uniform. We didn't know what to think about our experiment in being responsible going AWOL, so we thought nothing. Sex was a bad thing, booze was a good thing. That's tradition. O tempera, o mores, o caledonia. Twelve weeks later, I was pregnant. Of course I was. Um, so that was incredible. Um, that th th There's so much of, of, of what you've... Oh, all right. She's all right. Um, there's the, in what you've just read, there, there's so many of the, the, the themes that resonate through, through both these memoirs, the second one um, more so about wanting to become your own person, and that's something that we both talked about before, and, and here you're struggling against authority, and when you were saying, is it legal for a doctor to do that, I, d I mean, I guess it was legal for him not to prescribe you the pill, wasn't it? Perfectly, well, well just not right. Well, whether it was legal was beside the point. If, if, if any of you here were a, were a teenager, when I, when I was a teenager, you're coming up in 60, I'll tell you that for a start, <laughs> and the next thing is, th is that there was no point in wondering whether something was legal. People just did what they did. There was no such thing as a human right. It hadn't been invented, you know. Uh. And you, you just got what you got. That was how it was. Um, what, what happens next in that story, though, is, I mean, in terms of the, what the doctor would think, a greater sin than, than what, you, what you've gone for. Do you want to talk it was, it was a solution to my problem. Yeah. You? No, I, I d I'm not judging you, obviously. But, the, 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 you know, the, the irony of what that doctor did is, is toxic. Yeah, well, what, what the doctor actually did, it wasn't him. We, we couldn't go back to the, the doctor with a picture of the Pope. No. Uh, we went back to somebody else who that had known me as a three-year-old. My mother used to clean the doctor's surgery when I was three, and he had given us a roof over our head because my father was violent. So he'd been kind of the lady of the manor. He'd been Lady Bountiful, and he'd given us a box room to live in. And he'd given my mother a job so that she didn't have to pay the rent. So we were beholden <laughs> to the door. It seems funny using these words now. People don't use these servile yeah. words anymore. But we were beholden to the doctor. And I went to him and said, what am I going to do? And uh, he said, the first question was, are you clever? And I thought, what the f what's that going to do with anything? I think you can fall pregnant if you're daft. I don't actually, so I, don't, I didn't understand what that question was about. And he said, um, oh just if, if, if you're clever, we could maybe do something for you. And they thought, they thought of other girls going there and being assessed on their school grades as to whether they would be tipped for an abortion or not seemed just incredible, utterly beyond the pale. But I, was, I felt I was lucky. There was no way I was going to clip in the doctor, thank you very much, mm. because he'd done me a favour. I'm doing it now. I am clipping on the doctor now. Yeah, you've clipped on the doctor and you've clipped on quite a lot of other people, including yourself. And this is the question that, that I was asked earlier, and I, I put the same question to you, which is what was the reaction 
and the people um, around you, those who are still around, um, to, d to do with the, the books uh, when they came out? There's, there's nobody still around, or no, nobody that, oh, what a dreadful person I am. I was about to say nobody that matters. Everyone matters. We all know that. Everyone matters deeply. But if they can give you hassle, they seem to matter more yeah. than if they can't. And the, the entire family are dead, mm. which is, I was about to say lovely, but which is a blessing in disguise. And um, I noticed that it never occurred to me to even think about my past. I was very interested to hear Damien talking about that. You don't actually think about your past a lot till you hit a certain age or decide you're going to write a book about it. So, you know what to do. Die young and don't write a book. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you will be forced to go over this ground. It's something I'm looking for women who are roughly my age. There's nobody as old as me in here. Yes, yes. <laughs> I knew they'd reveal themselves. <laughs> looking good, looking good. There, there comes a certain age where you'd pass. I know it's a joke, and it's, uh, it's, it's partly David Williams' fault for taking literally the piss out of elderly people hmm. but your past can become more vivid than your present tense I could not tell you what I had for breakfast this morning, it's boring for one thing but I can tell you what I had for breakfast in the morning, I was seven because I remember, I remember being hit in the head by a Kit Kat <laughs> you know, which, which used to chuck through, used to wake you up and that was your breakfast in one go and because it was your birthday, it was a nice breakfast it was a chocolate Jesus. biscuit I can remember that really, really clearly yeah. and I think that thing, am I wrong? that thing seems to become part of you I think it's part of the preparation for the whole shop closing down because if there is one task you have you know, it's a human addiction to think what am I for? you're not for anything, we know that you're for damn all but it is a human requirement. Ask any existentialist. It's a human requirement to make a function for yourselves. Mm. Schopenhauer said it was art. Mm. He said you should get yourself involved in an art. <laughs> that'll last so long. <laughs> that, that'll last so long. And then you want something that's sli slightly more visceral somehow, slightly more part of the world, as it were. Mm. And what it is, is trying to make yourself better. Gandhi got it. In the end, you should have nothing left but a begging bowl. And your reputation in other people's eyes should keep you alive. Thanks to the present government, we're all going to get the chance to try. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of thinking, well, what you do is you look at your past and you think, what the fuck was that? All that stuff you were asking yourself when you were five, what? just happened there mm. why was that the wrong why am I not to say that what did I do that that kind mm. of stuff comes back to you and trying to find answers to me is my obsession of getting older I want to know why stuff happened so, so there's, a, there's a lot of detail like you were saying about the Kit Kat there's the, you know very often we feel like we're in, we're in that, that house with your mum and, and and or your sister, or we're in school with you, and we're, and we're being carried away as you were by music. Or it's very, it's very much we're very present, and the reason for that is we're located in your present by those details. Um, but then there are things that you kind of drop in that are huge, and then you skate away from them. Like yeah. you're describing in great detail the walk home from school, 
And then at one point you say, I think, and that's the close, or that, that's, that's the bush where a man grabbed me by the, by the neck once, but he let me go. And then, and then you're talking about, you know, the shop on the corner or whatever it is. And I just remember reading that and gaily being swept along by your writing and then going back and thinking, did she just say that a man grabbed her by the neck? And, and you don't explain it. You, nev- you never, you know, it, and it's just, you know, I wondered about that particular thing, why you did that. Pe- people didn't. People didn't. I mean, it, th- there is there is only one one thing I'm interested in writing, and that, that that's to make it visceral. I want I want you to be able to feel sensations on your skin. Yeah. I, w- I want you to be able to, to feel that. Um, I have a very odd way of working where I will do things with my eyes shut a lot. I really sympathised with the doing things to twelve o'clock at night, and then it was too late for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to go to bed now. I will put it off and put it off and put it off because it has to be visceral to me first. If I can't do that, it can't be visceral to you. Um, but if you if it is visceral to you, though, it's hard to get on with your day and your life, and you, you know you have sure to be in a space where you're not being disturbed by people or having to then go and get somebody from school or whatever else. It's very. I'm only you know too delighted to be disturbed, Damien, and that's the problem. Ah, okay. I'm finding it harder and harder to write as I get older because I'm aware there's a sky and there's birds and stuff out there, mm. and I'm sitting in a room talking to myself. Eventually, you do start to feel like a loony. You've got a long while yet, darling. Thank you. <laughs> Eventually, you start to feel like some kind of social outcast. And I suppose that reaching people is the thing you're doing. You're right. You want somebody to feel your hand that way. Really, I need to get out more. I'm aware of my problem. But at the same time, when you're actually writing that down, I remember that not being a thing. I went home. Uh, a bloke attacked me round the back of some buildings and held me against the wall and did, did various other things, and I stared at him. That's always been the secret of my success, just fucking weird everybody out. I stared at him till he let me go. Having an eight-year-old stare... <laughs> stare That's pretty stare terrifying. Stare at you with the intensity of Jesus. I imagine just scared the hell out of him, and he ran like hell. I thought there was something wrong with me. That was the bizarre thing. He ran as though there was something wrong with me. But I went home and didn't say to anybody that it happened because of exactly what you're talking about. You're lying. You're a drama queen. You must have had that yourself. You're you're this, that. You're causing trouble. Or who cares? My sister must have been raped at least three times. I mean, I remember coming home with her tights ripped and and her, her nails and her, her nail varnish. She was the kind of woman who would not allow her nail varnish to chip. If Nora's nails were chipped, something bad had happened. There were tiny wee giveaway signals, but you didn't report it to anybody. You probably brought it about yourself and you forgot about it. And it was putting that back into the text and the narrative. Mm. I come from a, a generation of kids who used to get belted with a leather toys by an adult at school and then were expected to get down and go on, to, to sit down and go on with their five times table. You were taught this denial as a good thing. You were taught that the stiff upper lip was a very good thing indeed. I believe it's coming back. Do you, how d- so having been through that and then written the books, do you, I mean, I was saying I felt better for having done it. I felt a sense of liberation and also a sense of fuck you from having told things, having done the telling. Did you feel, did you feel that, same, that same way or less so because there wasn't, because your family's not there around? There wasn't anybody to say fuck you to. Yeah. I mean, it never occurred to me to ask... Uh, the boy who appears as Philip, his actual name was Charles. His entire family were called after the royal family. God. So all I had to do was pick a different one <laughs> and, <laughs> and change the name. And um, I, d- I didn't even think to ask him because to me it's so solidly and so clearly 
my perspective. Mm. I have never had anybody write a book in which I appear as a character, so I don't know what the emotional judder, what the emotional shock of that might be like. Mm. But I'm under the sweet delusion that it wouldn't bother me because I could be, be able to, especially if it had another, another name, I can't see that it would bother me because you realise this is what someone makes out of nothing. The only thing you have to make a work of art out of, the only thing you have to make a book out of or a, or a, or a painting, uh, to make anything out of, to make of your children, is stuff that you know happened to you and being very clear in your vision and your perspective. Your moral values come from rejection or acceptance of what happened to you. Where mm. else can they come from? Mm -hmm. Books, sure. But that is kind of feeding what you have there already and verifying or denying it. So I'm acutely aware when I'm writing, whose point of view is this? It's mine. If somebody waves back and says, I've felt like that sometimes, or that happened to me, that's the best feeling in the world because yeah. you feel less alone. No, that's lovely when people get in touch and say they feel something about, about what you've, you've written. Um, I feel a bit tearful. Anyway, I'm going to take questions from the audience. That man at the back. So the, que the question for those who don't know who Cora slash Nora is, is, is Janice's much, much older sister in the book who is just something else. Um, do you want to take it from there? Oh, see, when, see when people say that, I get a burst of pride. My sister was something else. It's, um, well, she certainly was. You have to be proud of something. Yeah. <laughs> and she certainly was something else. She used to, I remember being interviewed by Stuart Kelly and he said, how would you feel if your sister walked in now? I said, I'd be scared. You'd be out of here, Stuart. <laughs> You'd be fucking out of here, lickety-split. She was a guy scarer. And that taught me something important. <laughs> that taught me something important. That's probably where I got the staring at this guy from. My sister used to stare people out. She had the eyes of the Medusa. And she could turn you to stone. And there was a power in that. I could see her power. I could see the massive attraction. She was as glamorous as get out. But she was glamorous for the time. See, when I look at pictures of her now, she looks like Myra fucking Hindley. Mm. She looks terrifying. She's got this big square jaw and this black lipstick. But at the time, that was glamour. You know, they're making a movie about Linda Lovelace. And the actress playing her is half her weight. This is revisionism. Yeah. This is revisionism. Women used to look normal. Yeah. Women, women used to look fat and everything. And they had squinty teeth. And they, and they had rosacea. And they had all sorts of things wrong with them. And I would quite like to see that reflected in our movies because it's almost as though we are denying history by turning people into what they're not. And I very much wanted her to be there as what she was. She was what she was. She couldn't have been other. And she wasn't being cruel to me deliberately. That's revisionism as well. She was just rotten. She was just rotten-minded. <laughs> she There's was just rotten-minded, and that's just what she was like. There is a sort of almost kind of a tender moment where when she hits you for the last time and you hit her back, and she, and she says that you finally kind of fought back, and if you'd done that terrible thing where she says if you'd done it sooner she wouldn't have kind of been as that's awful as she was. But, but, it, but there's this sort of thing where she's kind of rationalising it to herself as having been 
kind to you by being so vile that you finally learned to fight back. And that that doesn't, doesn't everybody do that? Doesn't everybody do that? No, Does see, I thought that as well, then I realised, no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, it's not. I, I think it, just na- it gets naturalised in us. Um, there's another question over here. I couldn't see there was a hand in the dark. Oh, I decided not to ask the question. I can't see. Um, I have a couple more. Um, which are The next one is, the book that you've just finished, can you tell us the tiniest, even the tiniest wee bit about oh that? Christ, I wish it was just finished. I'm yeah. saying that optimistically. Her husband's laughing in the corner. Yeah, <laughs> Jonathan's like, yeah. <laughs> I wish it was finished. It's, it's, uh, it's the slowest book I've ever tried to write. It's about, um, I decided to write about men for a change um, because, well, what could be more interesting? than trying to imagine the experience of being the other sex. Have you ever read Dustin Hoffman talking about being Tootsie? Yes, it's brilliant. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, you know, I d- I, you know, for a change, I wonder, instead of standing back and thinking, well, again, what the hell is that? How about trying to get into what these chaps think they're doing? And it's about a little boy who's 11 and a man who's in his early 30s, but he's not very sure. It's set in the late 17th, 18th, uh, early 18th century, so nobody's very sure of what their birthday is, which is fabulous. I don't have to get <laughs> things historically accurate because they keep, keep moving around. And there's a, a priest, and there's a servant, and it's about the lives of these four men and how they, how they interlace and how they don't interlace, about displaced people about people who don't fit. I'm very interested in people who don't fit. I think most of us don't fit. But we um, try to do a fantastic pretense of being just like everybody else. That's why so many people listen to the archers. (laughs) You know? Can I be interested in the price of milk? Can I be interested in the things that these people are interested in? Frankly, no. I've given up with that kind of thing. But there was a period where I thought if I watched enough TV, I'd learn how to be normal. <laughs> I really thought you could do that. Oh. That's really frightening. Mazel tov. That you could learn how to be normal from... Uh, you're never going to learn it from books. Mm. You're never going to learn it from books, which is why I think my love of them ousted everything else. But I learned an awful lot from the telly. Yeah. I don't learn a lot from it these days. No. I've written several le- I'm getting to the age where it's justified to write letters of complaint to the BBC for the <laughs> shite output. <laughs> Not another detective drama where everything's really dark. No, I really don't want this. Do you know how many female serial killers there are compared to how many we see on the TV? Yeah. That kind of thing starts to drive me crazy after a while. Um, but I, th- I think it was very important to... Um, get into the reality of what my sister was, the reality of what I'd experienced, and the reality of what I felt was going on around about me, because otherwise you lose it. If I don't write it down, mm. that, was, that was the other thing, the cheap, motivated, the cheap sentiment, motivating fact. It's not cheap sentiment, it was very dear sentiment. And it was that my son eventually pointed out to me, I never talked about my mother. You know how we all think, you look at your mum and you say, I'm never going to be like that. I am just not... It's obviously happened to you. (laughs) And what happens? You hear her coming out of your mouth sooner or later. Gentlemen, I've heard the same thing happens to blokes. Eventually, Dad will come ferreting out of your mouth, Damien. Oh, my God. And there's not an awful lot you can do about it because you've learned that stuff at a very early age. You've learned those perspectives and that language and those terms of phrase and that grammar at a very, very early age. And I remember being very aware... 
um, that he had a perspicacity I had not had. I did not mention my mother, and that was weird. Mm. Normal families, the yeah. ones I'd seen in the breakfast cereal ads, talked about her family. Mm. I did, so I said, well, what do you want to know? What did she do? was the first question. I said, she was a clippy. What's that? It's a woman that works in a bus and takes your fare. Why is that not the driver? Uh, oh, shit. Right, okay. We're in deep doo-doo here. He's <coughs> not going to understand a word. When I started talking about the coal horse, you can imagine how old I felt. A horse came round with our coal. And um, to try and explain these things, I realised I was going to have to exp- If I didn't write it down, he was never going to meet these people. They were long gone. Mm. Um, that's what I had to do. It is all written down. Um, you can meet these people. It is, they are fantastic books. I urge you to read them. And I also to thank Janice Galloway. We're having a 15-minute interval. We'll be back with Maggie O'Farrell. Thank you, Janice. <laughs>